Maybe you have heard or say these expressions. And if you do, just think about them as I'm reading to you. These expressions probably resemble some kind of truth for you. Maybe in some ways you are still using them. For instance, if I am a good person, I may go to heaven when I die. The Lord holds back blessings because of her lack of faith or because of my disobedience. When I experience difficult circumstances, it must be because I am not as faithful as the Lord would like me to be. God does his part, and I need to do mine. I need to meet him halfway. After all, God helped those who help themselves. All these expressions have one thing in common. Is man's effort to reach out to God, to gain God's favor on his own terms, on his own efforts. And I don't know if many of you or some of you, sometimes when you are just walking with the Lord, you feel like the Lord is smiling at you and you are doing great things and, 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 and you're excited because you feel like the Lord is, is so pleased with you. But then, then, because you are a human being, you made a mistake, you fell into the temptation, you sin. And then you feel like the Lord is angry at you. Even if you think that way, let me tell you something. You are basing your own faith on your own strength. Instead of enjoying the relationship that you have with him through grace, by faith, of his son Jesus Christ. All these human efforts of trying to live a Christian life or try to be pleasing the Lord, trying to reach out are more humanistic than actually what the scripture tells us that we need to live our lives with. We have become, in many ways, what Debbie Murray says, we are creationists living the evolutionists. We are creationists living as evolution. We believe that God created everything. We believe that he's in control of everything. But we still think that we need to improve ourselves every single day. Don't get me wrong. Definitely working out our salvation means that we are in the process of sanctification becoming better and better because not our efforts, but what he is doing in us and through us. It's all about him. It's not about me. I cannot help God. God is helping me. And it's important that you realize this because somehow we want to believe that if we work a little harder, if we suffer a little longer, if, if we just believe a little deeper, the Lord might, might be pleased, might grant us what we ask in prayer. Since the beginning of humanity, let me tell you something. People have sought to earn God's favor through various systems on work-based salvation. And you might say that if you're coming from a traditional faith, belief system, where you base your faith in works, in deeds, you might say that now that you're a Christian, 
uh, you are an evangelical Christian, you are no longer doing that. But many times, you're not going to believe it, but many times we just change certain habits, certain rituals for other rituals in our Christian systems as well. We're trying to contribute. We're trying to do our part. God does his part. We do ours. But it's important that we are responding to God based on what we believe, what we know about him, instead of trying to earn his favor by doing things. As a believer, we need to understand that a human effort, no matter how impressive compared to others, cannot secure the acceptance that we have before the Lord. We, God's grace means that there is nothing good we can do so God can love us more. There is nothing wrong we can make so God loves us less. He loves us and accepts us the way we are. But he loves us enough to change us in that process that we call sanctification. God's full and final acceptance, what we call justification, comes to us by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Nobody works just by faith. So we need to be less self-reliant and be more grace-reliant. That's what we need to. The desire of humankind to achieve salvation on their own merit, it takes us back since the beginning of our Christian beliefs, since the beginning of creation. If you remember the time when Noah descended after the flood and the entire population of the earth died except for Noah and his family. Noah's descendant in many ways form a, a people, a, a, a town. And they decided to move to a different area. The area, according to Genesis 9, was Shiner, the location of ancient Babylon. It was there when they forgot what just happened to, his, to their ancestors. And they start building a religion on their own. They were trying to earn, in some ways, God's favor on their own, their own terms. They defy God's mandate to spread out, to grow, to multiply, to take care of the earth. And they decided to get together. In Genesis 11:4, we read these words. They say, come, let us build up for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. In order to avoid the very thing God commanded, the spreading over the face of the earth, the people decided to make a name for themselves by building a tower. You probably know the story. It's called the Tower of Babel. Interestingly, this ancient Jewish historian, Josephus, wrote about this by saying that they built that tower with burned brick, cemented together with mortar made of asphalt that if it might not be able to admit water. So they, they didn't believe when the Lord told them, I'm never going to send that, that much rain again. I'm never going to destroy you anymore. They say, well, you say that, but just in case, we're going we're gonna to do our things. So they build a tower, 
and then make it in some ways resistant to floods or water, according to their minds. They apparently disbelieve God's promise that he will never going to send another global flood. So here we see what happened with a man-made religion. Believe me. Relationship is what God is looking after his creation, human beings. He wants, he, he craves for relationship. Is man the one who invented religion? It's a man-made thing, trying to please, trying to earn God's favor with rituals and every practice. What God wants for his creation, for the men and women, is that relationship. In this passage that I just read for you, we see the three foundations of a man-made false religion. First, rejection of God's promises. There's lack of faith. Rebellion against God's commands, that disobedience. And third, refusal of God's grace, that legalism. And you don't have to be in a different faith. You can be in the faith that you are right now and be living a false religion, becoming religious instead of establishing a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. God responded decisively to this attempt of unifying humanity under a single nationalistic religion. What he did? He fulfilled, he fulfilled his will, his purposes. What he did, he confused them. They were speaking one language, producing several indecipherable dialects. And that way, they were just running away. They were trying to find somebody who can understand them. And they were scattered all over the world. At the end of the day, even though they became one power, the Lord fulfilled his promise. So the plain of China, where the Tao, the Tower of Babel has been built, eventually became the center of one of the world's earliest empires, Babylon. The Babylonians took great pride in their buildings. They boasted about how, how, how wonderful their gardens were. Actually, it became one of the wonders of the ancient world. But Babylon collapsed. It was destroyed. Later, we study in the scriptures again that the word Babylon is used as a metaphor of a godless humanistic religion in general. This brings us to the book of Revelation that we study. Because in chapter 17 and 18, the word Babylon is introduced to us, which is a, a symbol of the last great world system before the return of Christ. If you brought your Bibles and you can open it in chapter 17 and chapter 18, those are going to be the two chapters that we're going to be talking about today. In Revelation 17, we'll read about the attempt to unfold the mystery of who is this Babylon, the great. And then in Revelation 18, we will unpack the reasons God will use to judge Babylon and how these chapters are applicable to us. Chapter 17 will, will show us what is this world system of religion. What is this philosophy, the idea, the spiritual Babylon, per se, this false religion. 
in chapter 18, we're talking about a commercial Babylon, more related to the powers of the world in these times. So the idea is that God's people should reject Babylon because one day God will reject it. And he will reject also those who belong to it. So let's put our hope on God, not in Babylon. That's my advice to you, to all of us. So, but who is this Babylon the Great? When we read that, instantly we think about Babylon, the place that used to be in the present Middle East in Iraq. The name Babylon means confusion in some ways. That's what the Tower of Babel means. And, and however, already occurs in the New Testament again. Peter actually mentioned the word Babylon to refer to Rome. When we read in 1 Peter 5.13. But in, in light of Revelation, the book that we are studying right now, this inclination that the book has to use a lot of symbolism, it probably means something different than just a country, a nation, a city. But it's a representation of something more humanistic, a worldwide religious system, per se. So in the same way that we refer, for instance, when we use the expression Wall Street, that's the name of the street. But you and I, we understand it as a commercial, as an economic center of this nation. When you and I talk about Hollywood, that's the name of a city, that's the name of a street. But for you and I, that's an idea of movies and maybe it's also sinful or whatever it is. So when you read Babylon right now in Revelation, you need to think not necessarily on a city or on a country. You need to think about a system, a system that in the end times will become important, prominent. But it's becoming something interesting because right now, chapter 17 and 18, this is the last part. In the last two vowels of the wrath of God that has been bestowed upon the earth, this is the last condemnation that's going to happen before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So John records a mysterious vision, verse number one in chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven vowels came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come for the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her, and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. Then I saw a woman sitting on the scarlet beast that has seven heads and ten horns. The women wore purple in a scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she had a gold goblet full of obscenities with impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead. 
Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I started with her in complete amazement. It's fascinating to read this. But who is this great harlot, this great prostitute, or Babylon, as we read in verse 1? Her religious influence was spread far and wide into the world. The spiritual immorality associated with this idolatry will have caused the world to fall into something like, like a spiritual drunk. Or, let me explain it to you. <clears throat> Imagine that woman sitting on that beast. And we understand by previous chapters that the beast that we're talking about here is not all the, by the beast, it's the Antichrist. In many ways, it's important to remember that when we study Revelation, we're not necessarily going chronologically in everything that is happening. We saw that the judgment of the seven seals, and when they were opening, judgment after judgment was happening unto the earth. And the last one was opening the second section of judgments with the trumpets. And one after the other one was increasing in power and atrocity and horror. And lastly, the seven vows with the wrath of God, one after the other one. Right now, in these two chapters, we are in between the sixth and the seventh vow of God's wrath. This is an unfolding upon those who are having dominion over the earth. This is what God announces. This is the final destruction to put everything at ease, to set the score, per se, about those who were rolling. And one of the interesting things that happened from the beginning, even in this time, at the end times, somehow we as human beings, we are very religious. Not necessarily believing in God, but there is something. God made us, made humanity as worshipers. But when men reject God and doesn't believe, wasn't believing him, doesn't want to worship him, it will tend to worship something else. Even a God made out of himself, whatever he wants to believe. But there is a natural thing. So Satan, who knows that, used that part to try to seduce the humans to believe in something. Something that can deviate their attention from worshiping the true God to worshiping something else. Even if that means worshiping themselves. And we see this unfolding here. This woman dressed up with, adorned with typical fashion on the ancient prostitute, held in a cup symbolizing her immorality. She rode atop of the beast with seven heads and ten horns. Again, we read in previous chapters that this means kings and, and, and kingdoms. She will be responsible for the numerous religions that follows her example. That's why it's called the mother of, of all abominations, the mother of all prostitutes. Because many of the different belief systems that happen that is not the true Christianity are derived from, from this system. 
This means that false religion systems she represents will lead the zeal of persecution and the slaughter of countless, uh, countless true servants of God in the end time. In response to this vision, John was amazed. He couldn't believe it, what he was observing. And the same angel who showed him the vision interpreted for him what this means. When we get to um, Verse 7, we heard the angel saying to him, Why are you amazed? The angel, angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of these women and to the beast with seven heads and, and ten horns on which she sits. The beast you saw was once alive, but is not now. And yet, he will soon come up out of the bombless pit and go to the eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed. And the reappearance of this beast who had died and lived again. This calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads, or the seven represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They are represent seven kings. Five kings have already fallen. The sixth king is now reigns. And the seventh is just yet to come. But this reign will be brief. The scarlet beast that was, but is no longer, is the eighth king. He is like the other seven. And he too is headed to destruction. The ten horns of the beast are the ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment. To reign with the beast. They will all agree to give him their power and authority. Together they will go to war against the lamb. But the lamb will defeat them. Because he is lord of lords and king of kings. And his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. So we see all this explanation about what that represents. But one important thing that we can understand from this point is with all the poverty and everything that this woman represents and the work that she is doing with these two other rulers will come to an end when she is no longer useful for the purposes of what they are implying. One of the things that we understand is that Satan knows that his time is short and he will do whatever it takes to try to confuse them. So we see and we already explained in the past that this angel is trying to explain to them this perfected vision about what will happen. In chapter 18, we see the reasons why God will judge Babylon. We understand that this is a religious system, but this religious system is intertwined with the economic and political system at the end of times. When we go to chapter 18, we understand that way that all these intertwined systems are working. We will think about a city. It may be a city somewhere, but it's not necessarily a city, but what represents this political system. For instance, this will be the, the Paris 
the friends that represents the lifestyle of the high culture. It will be the Jerusalem where all the crossroads or world religions will take place. It will be like Washington in this country, teeming with political power. In fact, if you were to, talk, to take the powerful cities in the world and merge them into one, that's what we can call Babylon. But again, it's not necessarily a nation, it's a system that was having the control. But it won't last for a long time. In fact, as we see here in verse 12, the moment that Satan is cast down from heaven, he will know that he has only a short time, Revelation 12, 12. He knows that this is a short time. Already in Revelation 14, 8, we were forewarned about this inevitable demise about what will happen. And here, in the way that is presented in chapter 18, verse 1 to 3, when it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. She who has been made all nations drink of the wine of the passion of her morality. Babylon will be hung. Babylon will be put to death, destroyed. In chapter 17, we see this woman who will be destroyed by the beast. In chapter 18, we will see this city who will be destroyed by God, by the wrath of God. In the wake of God's judgment, John hears the clarion of the Lord here announcing, and this is probably the most important thing that we need to remember. From those systems, from those systems that are working together as unison against the Lamb, against Jesus, is coming a voice who asks the Lord to his people, come out from her, my people. Seven times in the Bible, there is an exhortation of, to God's people to come out, to leave them. Don't be like them. The good news that we have, and repeat over and over, is that the church will be present with Jesus is. It's not going to endure this part of the tribulation. But there will be God's people and some of the Gentiles who became believers during that time who's going to be put into test in the faith and given a chance to repent. And this is what we see here. This is the cry, the clarion, the calling them to say, resist, hold on. Don't, don't believe what they are offering. Don't buy what they are selling. You resist. However, Christians frequently misunderstand how to implement biblical separation from the world. We are in this world. And we can take this to believe that we cannot just have friendships with people in the world. But we are sent to be the light, to be the salt in this world. We are sent to be in the world, but not be of the world. And that's important that we need to believe that we are here for a purpose, even in our time. This is future, but this is also affecting us. us. The church has to be showing to the world how different it is because of the faith that they have. And we need to do that. We need to remember that we don't let anything to infiltrate the church. The church has to impregnate the world, not the other way around. Imagine you have a, a white glove and you're playing with mud. You see that happening. You're never going to change the color of the mud. It's not going to make it white. Normally, it's just the white glove that you have in your hands, the one that, that is stained. So we need to be careful about 
being in the world, but not be out of the world. Jesus wants us to be there. He prayed for all who follow him. Father, protect them. They are not from this world, but they are in the world. Make them one so that people can know. So why did God put Babylon to death? He did it because of her weakness, the wickedness, and the rebellion. The rest of chapter 18 describes the ultimate death that they went through. And there are three, when, when this city is destroyed, when this Babylon is destroyed, there are three different groups who are mourning for the death of Babylon. The first one is the kings and politicians, the high and the mighty, the movers, the shakers, the kings of this earth who committed acts of immorality at least sensually, those, those who were benefiting from that relationship, those who became powerful and rich, they will be saying, whoa, whoa, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. They are heavy words of judgment. The second group that will be mourning for that death will be the economies, the, the commercial sector, the merchants. They will be weeping. They will be mourning because there will be nothing to buy or sell. There will be no more cargoes to be sent, no more produce to be produced. The last group who will be mourning will be the common laborers, the sailors, the marines, and every shipmaster, and every passenger, and every sailor. Because the economy will collapse, total. What we are seeing in our news about the economy right now is nothing in comparison to what will happen here. No religion, no economy, no polit political aspiration, everything will be destroyed. It will be coming to an end. Finally, I might see that the angel was telling John in this vision what actually will be the final future of this, of this city. And describes like a millstone, one of those heavy rocks that they used to, to grind the, 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 the grain. So heavy. Imagine taking one of those like one or two tons and throw it into the bottom of the ocean. That quick, that fast will be the destruction of this city. It's a very heavy two chapters full of imagery. What we need to remember is the systems that we know it will disappear. Those who are against God's purposes will be put in place. Religiosity, business, and everything. At that moment, it will be the last stroke. Then we go to the first verses. We're not going to be in detail, seeing in detail now. But it's wonderful to see what will happen because even though there are people who mourn on earth with the destruction of Babylon, on heaven, there are groups, three groups of people as well who are rejoicing, rejoicing for this destruction. Not necessarily because someone is suffering, it's just because the Lord is vindicating those who were dead on the hands of this 
these or this um, system in the world per se. Why they're celebrating? Well, first they celebrate because the power of God has vanquished evil. We read it in chapter 19. The first two verses in chapter 19 says, After this I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgment are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. They celebrate because the power of God has vanquished evil. Second, they celebrate because the Lord God reigns. And again, their voices run out saying, praise the Lord. The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped God who was sitting at the throne. They cried out, amen, praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that says, praise our God and all his servants and all who fear him from the least to the greatest. Then I heard again what shouted like a shout of a vast crowd of the roar of mighty oceans or the crash of the loud thunder saying, praise the Lord for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest pure wine linens to wear for the finest linen represents our good deeds and holy God's temple. And the angel said to me, and listen, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding or the feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words that came from God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship to him but he said, no, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God, for the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness from him. So they celebrate because of the marriage of the Lamb has come, and they celebrate because the marriage of the supper begins. Just imagine the gathering that will happen. What the earth is suffering and going through this turmoil on heaven, everything is rejoicing. Three observations on these verses as a point of concluding these, these chapters. In Revelation 19, it's the only place in the New Testament that you will hear the word hallelujah. We use it all the time. But in the entire New Testament, it's right here. It's a wonderful curse. Assuming that everything that was done, it was perfectly fine according to God's purposes. Because every power that rise will fall when that power is against God's purposes. At the end, God will vindicate his people and he will be the triumph king. God's end, this end time judgment was something that the first Christians were eager for, not embarrassed, not afraid of. They were looking forward for this time. God's end time judgment, his wrath upon humanity, 
was something that they were longing for. This is the answer of the prayer. This is the prayer that the Lord taught his disciples when he says, your kingdom come, you will be done. Right here on earth as it's in heaven. And finally, that answer of prayer will come here. So the greatest powers of the world do not reign forever. Only God does. Only God does. These are the true words of God. So when we are discouraged about how the world is going, when we are discouraged by the perception what we see in politics, in economy, everything, when we are discouraged by how the world is happening, what's happening in the world, we need to be encouraged by the promises that we find in God's word. And this is what we need to remember. I will continue to study this wonderful book of Revelation. And the chapters will come. We start seeing the unfolding of the wonderful news when God is completing, when God is fulfilling, fulfilling his promise. So let's think about this. And we say hallelujah. These wonderful words, they need to resonate with us. Hallelujah. Our God reigns. Our great God reigns. This might be weird right now with every, everything that is happening around us. With more violence, with more brutality, with the decadent society we live, the culture that says something different, culture that calls the good things bad things, and the bad things they call the good things. When you are discouraged at how the world goes, remember, be encouraged by the promises that we find in God's word. This is the promise given to the prophet of God. That God will bring down every power that opposes him. And that God will bring down everything in this world that stands against him, against his purposes. Remember, if Revelation was a movie, which can be an interesting movie. You and I who understand God's word, we know how this movie ends. And at the end, our rey, our God will reign, will triumph. Are we closer in prayer? Prepare our hearts to worship the Lord exactly with those words, exalting his greatness because only God is great. He is the one who is in control of everything. And he is the one who will sustain us until the end. Father, we come to you, Father, to thank you. This morning, Father, we approach you and we thank you for your word. Father God, we want to declare that with faith, we want to believe that is by faith and not by, by the works that I can do. That we are, Father, living our lives. We don't, we don't do good deeds just to gain your favor. We do it because we are enjoying this relationship with you. And I pray that anyone in this room who is struggling to believe 
Who's struggling to trust in that promise? Who's struggling to trust that that person can understand, Father, that everything will be okay if, if they just trust you? That you're going to accomplish your purposes. And I pray, Father, that you will fulfill your promises. Father, we present ourselves to you. And we trust, Father, that your word will never gonna go back to you empty. And we pray, Father, that you can help us to understand that the summary of this portion of the scripture we just read is that the you, Father, are the God who reigns. You are the God who reigns. Be our king. Sit in our thrones, in our hearts, and help us to trust you every single day. We ask you this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And everybody said.